church. Let's pray together right now. Father, we do adore you. You are the one that is holy, holy, holy. Lord, you are alone holy. You alone are good and awesome and worthy of our praise and adoration. Jesus, we thank you for this evening, Lord God. Would you bless the remaining time together we have tonight, Father? Would you bless your word, Father? You are blessed, Father. Your word actually already is blessed, Father. Just bless us in hearing it. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. The church said, Amen. Amen. Jerry, thank you, sir. Amen. Well, welcome to our last night in a parking lot on a Saturday night. You sound very excited. All right. I, for one, am excited. I'm looking forward to going back to Sunday morning. So you're going to hear this again in the announcements. But next week, we are not here. If you show up here, you're going to be by yourself. Amen. Amen. So I've got a question. I wanted to lead with a little question tonight. So we all have a lot of choices when it comes to, to, to even choosing a church, right? It's like, no, hopefully nobody is making you come to Pillar Church of Oceanside. And there's a lot of things that go into deciding to go to a church, right? So you look at maybe the doctrine they're teaching. Um, doctrine is definitely important. But the teaching style of, of the pastors, that, that matters, right? Nobody wants to, to sit and you're just bored out of your mind. Has anyone ever gone to a church like that? Yeah, I have. Right? Um, you want you look for something in the music, and maybe it, it's kids. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to the elders, the leaders of the church. That, at least that's my decision-making process. Other things grow and they change, uh, but the man of God really, you know, shouldn't. I mean, he should grow and change too. But you said that that's kind of the the uh, the the, uh, the source of where it all flows down from. So I want to ask you a question about something. So. You're deciding to go to a church and, and, you're, and you're looking at the leaders of the church. And then you find out that, well, this one, there's a leader of a church, but he's not educated. You come to find out he's never gone to college, never went to Bible college, no, no real formal training. Okay? So you find out this about him. Then you come to find out at some point in his life that you know, he was told the parables of Jesus and he just didn't understand them. So much so he just like, you know, blatantly in front of everybody, like, well, what does that mean? just straight up says that. Now, this is, this is the leader of a church. And at one point, you know, he's actually against even having kids come to Jesus, right? He wants, he wants kids kept away, right? Like, hey, the kids are secondary. Right? This, is, this is an adult thing. This isn't for kids. This is this leader's attitude. Then you come to find out. So you're, you're doing your research and you're asking people. Then you find out. It's like, oh, you know, tell me more about this guy. And then you find out that he, you overheard him in the back with the other pastors and they were actually arguing who, who's actually the greatest in the kingdom of God. He's a, this, this pastor's like, you know, I, actually, I, I, I might be the greatest in the kingdom. You actually hear him saying that. It's not a joke. This guy's actually saying that. And now you're starting to like kind of raise that eyebrow up, kind of like the rock. I can't do it. If I could do anything, I wish I could just lift one eyebrow like the rock and look at someone like that, but I can't do that. So you can start making that face, right? You're like, man, what's this guy about? Should I be going to this church? Then you find out, it's like, man, he, his best friend was going through the worst time in his life. I mean, so much so he was having a, a breakdown, weeping. And he called him over and said, can you just be with me tonight? I, I'm really going through it. I, I just need you here. You don't need to say anything. Just, just sit over there and, and be with me and pray. And then the, the, this elder, this pastor, leader of a church, he actually, he fell asleep while his friend is just crying out in agony. He falls asleep. To make matters worse, that you find out that his friend was actually murdered a couple days later. Right, like, it's just terrible. Like, man, this is the leader of a church. Then, as, as a leader, 
he's out in the, he was at, the, let's say, the farmer's market here in Oceanside. And then you actually, people overheard him telling people he wasn't a Christian. Adamantly so. I am not a Christian. I do not follow Jesus Christ. I, I have nothing to do with that. And this is his testimony out in public. Now, this is a leader of the church. Life gets tough, and then you find out this pastor at one time had also quit the ministry, and he went back to his blue-collar job. Then, the most damning thing of all, later on you find out, so you're like, I don't know what's going on with this guy. Then you find out that he was actually called out in front of all the other pastors here in North County, San Diego, and you found out that he was called out for being a hypocrite. Come to find out he was preaching one thing and doing something else. Now let me ask you, would you decide to go to that church? Nobody has an answer. Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty damning, right? Like, yeah, I don't think this is the right church for me. Many of you probably picked up on it, but we just described Peter. The book we're reading that became scripture. The scripture records everybody's faults, right? All these things Peter did. He denied the Lord, right? After Jesus' death, he went back to being a fisherman, just kind of wandering aimless, right? He, he quirked up. What, what do these parables mean, Jesus? Jesus was crying out in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter was asleep. Jesus was having the greatest trial of his life. He goes, can't you even stay awake? Everything we described as Peter. And yet in 2020 America, if we find out that a man of God did this, where are we at? You know, if you found out I did one of these things, you probably would think about leaving or at least corner me, right? It's like, what's wrong with you? You know, like we, we expect more. It's like, what does it have to do with First Peter? Well, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to jump into this tonight. It's because we're going to find out, and, and you already know this, but we're all broken people. And even leaders, even influential leaders like Peter, right? In Jesus' inner circle. If a man who walked physically this close to Jesus, right, he knew, he saw things that you and I only dream we could see. And if he struggled in these areas, you know, why do we judge each other so much for our, our, our failures in these areas? Amen? Amen. Well, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. Does anybody need a copy of 1 Peter? We have extra journals and there's room to take notes. Does anyone need one? If you raise your hand, Jackie would be happy to give you one. Jackie, there's some hands behind you as well. I'm a fan of paper Bibles. Uh, it's good to be able to put your notes somewhere because we can't remember everything. So we're in 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 2, and our text tonight starts in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 12. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to, we're going to start breaking this down. And Peter writes this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. So he starts this portion of scripture off with living stones. So if you hang out with me at all, you're going to, the Mike Young, and this is not an original thing to me, but is to understand the New Testament is you need to understand the Old Testament, right? Because what we call this is there's hyperlinks. There'll be phrases and expressions that may be completely foreign to us, but they actually pop up all over the Hebrew Bible. And what we need to figure out is like, okay, what is a living stone? So let's give an example before we dive into this one, because living stones can be a little bit tougher, but I'll give you a great example. So do you remember when the woman was at the well, Jesus was at a well and he meets a woman there and he says, give me a drink. Does everyone remember this? I tell my wife all the time, get me a drink. And her response was, how could you ask me to give you a drink? Knowing that she's a Samaritan, right? And Jesus is obviously very Jewish. Jesus said, look, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask of him and he would give you what? Living water. Okay, so this is going to be an easy one. This is an example. So we, it's like, well, wait a minute. Has living water ever, ever shown up in the Bible before? And it has. Exodus, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read you a couple scriptures. In Jeremiah 17, 13, it says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Jeremiah 2, 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Right, so this is just a couple, but this phrase living water pops up and you start doing research and you find out that living water is water that is always in motion. The Jews have a form of baptism called a mikvah. And what this is, the water that goes into the, to the, the tub has to be living water. That means water that has never been stagnant. So water from a river, water that is caught from a rain, gathered in a cistern, right? So that's, that's what living water is. And Jesus here is saying, if you would have known, I would have given you living water. Later on in John 7, he says, whoever believes in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of what? Living water. And then it adds this caveat. He was speaking of the spirit, but they didn't know this yet. So we see a long history of living water. And you start doing the research and what it means that, oh, it's this moving. It's this always flowing water. And then God calls himself the source of all living water. When Jesus said, if you would have asked me, I would have gave you living water, a Jew would have heard, are you calling yourself God right now? Because according to Jeremiah, there's only one person that can give us living water. That's Yahweh, amen? That's awesome. So when Jesus says that, we, you and I, we blast right over this. Cool, Jesus is gonna give me living water. But it's very, very spiritually significant. So, what about living stones? Now, this is a little bit tougher because the Old Testament word for this is going to be a little bit different. If you have a full Bible, uh, go to Exodus 20, verse 25. <coughs> if 
you don't have one, you can just write the reference down. So, to a Jew, what is a living stone? Exodus 20, 25 says this, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Really, the spoiler alert here is a living stone is a stone that has not been chiseled or cut by man. It's a raw stone. You find the stone. But even more spiritually significant, a living stone was used specifically for the altar of God. The instructions to build the altar was that you take a living stone, meaning it hasn't been chiseled, you haven't cut into it, and then you're going to make this altar out of this stone. Matter of fact, if man cut into that stone at all, shaped it in any way, God says it's now profane. It cannot be used for my altar. Go to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. Let's start in verse 30. I'm going to read to verse 32. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. So we see here that the stones of the altar actually represented the 12 who? Yeah, the 12 tribes, right? So these living stones that were never cut represented people. And now Peter is saying, come to Jesus as a living stone, right? Let's look at the word. Let's go back to 1 Peter. Verse 4. As you come to him, comma, a living stone. Now it's talking about Jesus. And it says, he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. Awesome. Jesus is the living stone, right? He, if, here's the picture, that Israel was looking for stones for an altar. They were looking for this living stone, but men rejected it because it didn't look like they thought it should look. You, you see the image that Peter's doing here, Right? We are looking for the stone that's going to be the altar for God. And, it does, and, and men now have rejected this. But God says that very thing that men have rejected, what has God done? He's, I've chosen this, right? He says, it's precious. Flip over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, this is verses 20 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So keep your hand in first Peter. We're going to be jumping back and forth here. It says, come to him as a living stone that men have rejected, but God has chosen this stone. But you also, this is verse five, you also are a living stone. Did you catch that? So Jesus is a living stone and who else is the living stone here? Us. And we see because of Ephesians that he's the, he's the cornerstone. That means he's the bedrock. He's the, he's the whole foundation, how this whole thing holds together. 
and it says that we are being built upon him. And we're going to find out. It says exactly that in 1 Peter. He says we're being built into a spiritual house. We're going to, we're going to dive into that. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. 1 Corinthians 3.11. It says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. Friends, he is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. Now, i use my Bible marker here, sorry. Go to Daniel chapter 2. This is also prophetically significant because there's something that happens in Daniel about this cornerstone, this, this living stone. When you think of living space stone, not living stone, living stone. Living stone, remember, it's a stone that has not been cut by a man's hand, right? Like, that means there's no... When, if you... Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll stop. Go to Daniel chapter 2. So what's going on in Daniel 2 is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And this dream really troubles him, right? Have you ever had a dream that troubled you? I've, I've had a couple in my life. Not like scary dreams, but dreams you wake up and you're like, was that God? Was he trying to, you know, like, you know that this might have meant something. But... I don't know if you've ever done this, but then you ask somebody like a, a mature Christian, you're like, hey, I had this dream. What do you think this means? Has anyone ever done that? Am I the only one? Maybe I'm a weirdo. Two, two, three weirdos. Okay, cool. It, it's really profound when it happens because like, is this a God thing? And you know it's a God thing because you can't shake it. Like weird dreams happen, then 20 minutes later, you, or you wake up and it's like in a fog and it goes away. I've had a couple dreams in my life that they're still as vi vivid now as they were when I had them, you know, 15 years ago. So he has this dream, but he knows he's surrounded by a potential con men. So he's like, hey, I want to know what this dream means, but not, and they're like, yeah, King, we'll tell you what the dream means. He's got, you know, he's got a sycophants. He's got his boys around, around his throne. He's like, no, I, I know what you're going to do to me. What I want you to do is I want you to tell me the dream I had, and then I will believe you if you tell me what it means. And they're like, man, this is impossible, right? Enter who? Daniel, right? So Daniel comes in. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll tell the dream. I'll tell the king what his dream is. Then I'll tell you what it means. Now, check this out. I'm going to point out just a couple verses here. First of all, he's explaining how he's able to do this. But he, before he tells him everything, he tells him this is the point. This is what it's about. This is in verse 28. He said, he's talking to the king. Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, right? So he's telling them, hey, you're going to see what's going to happen. Latter days is like the word for the end times. And all this thing comes about later on. Skip over to verse 31. So here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest of arms and silver, its middle and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you looked at a stone was cut out by no human hand. Uh-oh, you guys see that? So we see a stone not cut with human hands. Basically a living stone. You see a living stone. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and it broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay and the bronze and the silver and all the gold all came together, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Look at this. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now you see where I'm going, hopefully. Right? 
this prophecy. And if you keep reading Daniel 2, you'll find out that this, this stone that was cut without human hands is, is the final king. The everlasting kingdom is this stone. That's what the stone represents. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the cornerstone, he is the living stone. This is awesome, right? This is the fulfillment. When Peter says this here, without this verse in Peter, you know, Paul never calls us living stones, right? Like Paul uses different analogies for this. He talks about building a spiritual house, but he talks about we are his hands, we are his feet. Our bodies are the, the temple of the spirit, right? Paul is explaining the same thing, but he's using different language. Here, Peter says, come to the living stone as a living stone. And you get this idea that he's going, God is going to build something here. And this goes all the way back to Daniel, this, this vision of a living stone coming out of a mountain and crushing all other kingdoms. And the stone becomes so big itself, it becomes a mountain and dwarfs everything. That's Jesus. This is awesome, right? Am I the only one that gets excited about this stuff? You're probably saying, get a girlfriend. Thank you very much. I have a wife, so don't worry about it, right? You can... Have a girlfriend or a wife and be excited about these things. Okay, so let's read this. I'm gonna read this to you again because I'm really trying to hammer this home. I want you to really think about what this is like. So Peter, who walked with Jesus, is writing. Remember this, he's writing to Gentile Christians. And actually, we find that out here coming up. And he's trying to explain to them. But what he's telling them is, is this. Christian, come to him as a living, come to the living stone, the stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God was chosen and precious. You yourselves are living stones. Now watch this. You are being built up into a spiritual house. Amen? So this spiritual house is being built up. So the point of it is, is that God is building something. You guys all right? We're good. John's got it. <laughs> Amen? So think of this like you're building a house. What goes down first? The foundation goes down first. And he begins to build on it. Who's the foundation now? Jesus. Now, your next question should be, what is a spiritual house? A spiritual house, it, the Jews would know that as the temple, right? This is what they're thinking, right? So the spiritual house at the time of this writing was a temple, right? So he's using temple language here, okay? Chief cornerstone, foundations. We saw the, the altar, right? He's using all these words that should be temple-oriented. He's building this temple. And it says this. He's, the purpose of building this, this is in verse 5. It says, is to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember where we saw that living stones, what was the point of the living stones in the Old Testament? What did they build? Altars. You notice here that these living stones are also sacrificing something. What are they sacrificing? Spiritual sacrifices, right? No longer physical, but spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It was a big deal, again, in Old Testament times, if God would accept the sacrifice, right? You had to do everything exactly by the rules, by the books, the high priest, the whole nine yards, right? But he says like, look, God is taking you as spiritual stones and these spiritual stones are offering spiritual sacrifices and they're acceptable because of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen? All right. So 
we're going through that uh, spiritual house. And then he says, for it stands in scripture. So he goes then and then recites the scriptures he just quoted. For behold, I'm laying in Zion, a cornerstone. You notice here it says chosen and precious, right? He used this language already. It says, uh, verse 7, so it is honor for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, this is speaking of Jesus. Did the Jews reject him? Did the religious institution during Jesus' day, did they, did, were they excited about him and his ministry? No, far from it, right? They, they had him killed. <laughs> they were the exact opposite of being excited. So jump down. Let's go, go to verse 9. So he again starts addressing the believers, which in this letter, this is you and I, right? So now we can start to identify. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All the language he's using here is Old Testament language that originally described Israel. In the New Testament, whenever you see words, you need to look up their origin. Right? So when God calls somebody elect or chosen or royal or priesthood, these all have ancient meanings. Right? They meant something to these people. Now he's saying to the Gentile believers, he calls them that. Check this out. First thing he says is you're a chosen race. This is found in Deuteronomy 10.15. There's a lot of places, but Deuteronomy 10.15 says this. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all the peoples as you are this day. Israel was the original chosen race. He says, look, as he chose your fathers, he's chosen all their offspring. Now, Peter actually has the gall to look at Gentiles and say, you're chosen people. Amen. Ephesians says, the great mystery has always been is that God would include the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. It doesn't mean a lot to us now, 2,000 years later, but the time of this writing, it is still blowing people's minds that they can, that Gentiles can be a part of this. They don't have to adhere to the law. You guys understand, like, this is a big, big, big deal. And then the fact that Israel was always God's chosen people. They were always the chosen race, and they, they still are. But the Bible says that we are now grafted into this. We are now a part of that chosen race. It says a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Isaiah 19.6 says this. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, this is a promise, not originally for us, but to Israel. Peter turns the, turns the switch over and he looks at the church and says, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Again, it's using this election language, this choosing language that originally, friends, we were outside of this. This was all for Israel. That was that bloodline. That was them. We were strangers to the covenants and promises of God, the Bible says. But through his great mercy and through Jesus Christ, we are now a part of that possession. Amen? He calls us that. He calls us the same language that was reserved for Israel. He, next, he says, a people for his own possession. Exodus 19.5 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. He tells Israel explicitly, if you just keep, keep this covenant with me, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be mine, right? In Genesis 10 and 11, God has forsaken all other nations. And right after this, we see the call of Abraham, and God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. So much so that the, the sand at the sea and the stars in the sky, that this nation is going to outgrow anything you could ever possibly imagine. God takes over everything, taking one man. Friends, we are now included in Israel. We haven't replaced Israel, but we are included in Israel now in God's eyes. We are his covenant partners. We are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Amen? These are things to be excited about. Friends, we, without Jesus, we are excluded from this, but now we are part of it. So back to verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We use this expression all the time. God has called us from the darkness to the light. In the book of Acts, it says darkness is actually the kingdom of Satan and the light is the kingdom of God. If we go back, this is one of my favorite things to do is like, well, okay, have we seen light and dark before used in the Bible? Do you remember the 10 plagues in Egypt? One of the plagues was darkness. It was so dark, people just had to sit there. It said it lasted for three days. But guess who had light? Israel did. God's people had light. God has called us out of this Egypt and into his light. God has called us from Satan's domain to his domain. Verse 10, once you were not a people. Okay, Israel has always been a people. This is how we know he's talking to Gentile believers. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Let's look at our final two verses here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. So again, he's using Israel language. Once again, he calls the church sojourners. This is, what it, this is how Israel views themselves. If you look that word up, go to blueletterbible.com, type in the word sojourners, and look at the millions of scriptures that are going to pop up. A lot of them talk about Egypt, uh, Israel leaving Egypt, going through the wilderness as sojourners, right? This just means a foreigner. This, that's really what it means. Somebody who doesn't quite belong where they're at. And then Peter again calls the church, like, you're, you're foreigners. You don't belong here. Look at these scriptures. Go to Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Psalm 119, 19. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Friends, the easiest way is to look at ourselves is, have you ever heard the scripture? You've seen the bumper sticker, I'm sure, not of this world that I'm talking about. The Bible says our citizenship is not of this earth, but it's where? It's in heaven right? So it says, treat your time here as a foreigner, as an alien, as a sojourner. We are walking through here. This is, friends, this is not our final destination. And Peter implores us. He says, look, as an exile, as a sojourner, he goes, watch out for that flesh, right? These fleshly desires that war against your soul. Our battle, friends, is, is against our flesh, like the world that's still in us. We're now God. He says, at once, you, you're not a people, but now you're a people. 
You didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. Because of this, because you're God's people, take care of how you act in this body. You're his. And you take care of how you do it. One, because it wars against your soul. But two, it says so that when the world sees you, right? So this world that we've escaped from and they see you, it says they will glorify the Father on the day of visitation. Your life, friends, is a testimony. Your life as a living stone is a testimony. Now, we'll close and try to package this again. So I'm going to give you the Michael Young paraphrase. You ready for it? I set you up with saying, don't, you wouldn't run Peter out of town, so don't try to run me out of town. I set, I set you up to save my life. No, think of it this way. So he uses the idea of living stones, right? And we said that a living stone has not been chiseled on by man's hammers. Now we can draw the parallels. You think about our works, like we try to chisel ourselves into shape for God's use. That doesn't work, right? It's unhewn. It, it hasn't been cut, right? Does God accept you for who you are when you come to Jesus Christ? Yes, your baggage, your all, your rough edges, all these gnarly things. Jesus told Peter, Peter, he called him a rock. He said, but on this rock, the rock of the knowledge that Jesus is Messiah, I will build my church. So Peter, and I started with this, he has all these glaring problems throughout scripture. Everyone, I mean, Peter's probably the most ragged on person. Peter's one of my heroes. Cut a dude's ear off, right? Like Peter is... Man, he's just, he's just a human being. He would have, I, I see me making the same mistakes Peter made. Right? I have made tons of them. And God used him as one of these foundation stones to build the kingdom. It says this in Revelation. You find out that the apostles are the foundation of this whole thing. Friends, if God would use Peter, do you think when he looks at you as a spiritual stone that God can build you into that spiritual house he's looking after? The answer is yes. Nod your head yes. Yes. God will use you, all your imperfections, all the things that have been wrong, all the things that you've done wrong or you will do wrong, doesn't prohibit you from the master's use in building a spiritual house that will glorify and honor him. Amen? But take heed to yourself. Understand that you are now a part of this big Bible journey. This Bible is our story, but it's it's Israel's story and and the covenant relationship with their God I want you to see this. Did you know that God is married? Okay. Yes, the Bible uses language that God is actually married to who? Israel. Actually, Israel. In the Old Testament, he's married to Israel. And he makes a point throughout all the prophets that his bride is unfaithful. Israel's played the harlot, the Bible says, under all the trees. Right? This is his big problem is he made a covenant relationship with Israel. And they let him down every single time says they played the whore, they played the harlot. He uses really tough languages, right? And we get the New Testament, it says we are the bride of Christ to become betrothed. It's like, well, I'm not saying God's a polygamist because we're being grafted into Israel, this covenant relationship here. So when you see the bride of Christ, it should go back, it's like, wait a minute, what does God say about himself in marriage? Not what does he say about marriage for you and I, right? And it's like, oh, this actually has Jewish roots too. Like God is communicating something here that God looks at his covenant partnership with you and I like a marriage, right? We are the bride of Christ, right? He's got this covenant relationship with us. So when Peter uses all this language, and I'm setting you up because Trace already started this when he talked about gird up the the loins of your mind. This expression, uh, gird up your loins, Trace brought this out last week. 
actually comes from the celebrating Passover, that you're to gird yourself up, that you need to eat on the go, right? He's using all these Jewish expressions. And if you take the time to study it out and find out where they come from, your New Testament is going to make a whole lot of sense what he's trying to say to you. Amen? Well, I hope you got something. Again, we, we take a few verses there and we try to unpack them what he's getting at. And if you ask me in one sentence, what is he trying to say? Well, everything that the world has rejected as far as what they think God actually wants on this earth, he's actually chosen it, right? You think about Peter, you think about all the failings of every, all of us all together. God is still doing something beautiful, right? And it's gonna be to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, we just thank you. We're just so encouraged, Father, to know that as uncut stones here, Father God, that we are rough on the outside, Father. But Lord, you are the one that are chiseling us and molding us for your use, Father God. Help us to abstain from these fleshly lusts, Father. Help us to live out our time here, Father, as sojourners, Father, knowing that we have a higher calling and a higher destination. And just like we saw your people, Israel, Father, help us not fall in the same traps of faithlessness that they did. Father, have mercy upon us, Father. And help us look to you, Father. Would you see us through? We again thank you and bless you in Jesus' mighty name. The church said, amen.